This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to the New Books Network. Good afternoon, and welcome back to the New Books Podcast in Eastern European Studies. I'm your host, Piotr Kosicki. I'm a professor of history at the University of Maryland in College Park. Joining me today is Anna Marcevic author of the book, Civility in Uncivil Times, Kazimierz Motarski's Quiet Battle for Truth, From the Polish Underground to Stalinist Prison, which was published in late 2020 by Peter Lang. This is the first English-language edition of Marcevich's biography of Kazimierz Motarski, a powerful case study of some of the extreme ethical, political, and human dilemmas faced in the history of 20th century Eastern Europe. Motarski became a major figure in the Polish underground state in the final months of World War II, but he is best known for sharing a cell in post-war Stalinist prison with SS General Jürgen Strupp, liquidator of the Warsaw Ghetto. After serving one of the longest prison terms in the history of communist Poland, 11 years, Motarski reconstructed his conversations in forensic detail in a book published posthumously under the death Conversations with an Execution. Now, our guest, Anna Marcevich, is assistant professor in the Institute of Political Studies of the Polish Academy of Sciences in Warsaw, as well as a past research fellow at both Yale University and the Imre Kertes Kolleg in Jena. She is a very accomplished author and historian and very influential uh, in several different circles of Polish historical writing. Aside from her biography of Motarski, she is also the author of a beautifully written and much lauded study of the Genesis of Solidarity in August 1980, entitled Bunt, uh, or Rebellion, which I understand is in the process of being translated. Professor Marcevich, welcome. Welcome, welcome. You're welcome, everybody. (laughs) Thank you so much for joining us. If I may ask to start the conversation, since some of our audience probably has never heard of Kazimierz Motarski before, could you please say a few words about why you chose to write a book about him. This life story, Motarski, was, um, I would say, never. For for years, Motarski was known as uh, the author of his only book about Stop. Uh, It was a very important book, but his own biography was unexplored, was hidden. And when the communist secret service, uh, secret um, communist secret police archive was opened in Poland, I found interesting files regarding him. Uh, there were protocols of interrogation, trials, documents, reports submitted secretly by a person Mochalski trusted. 
very uh, interesting, personal, uh, um, very touching materials. Uh, materials from her surveillance after releasing. His wife was harassed by the security service which tried to discredit his name. Additionally, thanks to uh, Moczarski's daughter, I received the access to his personal archive. There were also documents, memoirs, letters, personal letters, letters from prison. Reading all this, I have met a fascinated story of life in a difficult time and a really exceptional character for a book. So it was the decision how I must write it. It makes perfect sense, and it's a very compelling story on so many levels. May I ask just for our international audience, uh, some folks might wonder if you would describe Motarski now from the perspective of having written the book and having put it down and had time afterwards since its publication to think, would you call him a historian first? Would you call him a martyr or someone who suffered for a cause, a resistance fighter? For an audience that maybe doesn't necessarily focus above all on Poland, how should they place him historically? Hmm. I... Would say never a resistance fighter nor a martyr for a cause. He wasn't a typical resistance fighter because he didn't touch a gun during during the war. Under the German occupation, Muczarski did uh, his best as a citizen of the underground state, but not coincidentally. He was rational. He had a very strong personality, but he wasn't a heroic type at all. Uh, I even think that he would have protested against the world of a martyr. He didn't like the grand words. This is actually, uh, I think, a wonderful entry point to thinking about where his own approach to uh, civic engagement came from. Uh, something that struck me when I was reading the book, especially in the first chapters, is the importance of the legacy of 19th century struggles for Polish nationhood and Polish identity. Uh, for those who, who um, studied Polish history, the term organic work might be familiar or positivism. Wade for Moczarski, half a century later when he was working on behalf of the Polish underground state. So let me ask you, is that assumption even uh, founded, well-founded on my part? Does it make sense to think about the 19th century when we think about Motarski in the middle of the 20th century? Mm. Uh, and in that sense, I appreciate what you said, that he would have not liked the word martyr at all. But... Where might he have placed himself relative to the earlier generations in terms of trying to keep Polish sovereign, Poland sovereign, and alive? Mm. Responding to this is a very long question. <laughs> um, Sorry about that. <laughs> uh, responding to the first part um, about the legacy of of. Um, um, January uprising. <laughs> uh, 
And so um, Moczewski was uh, 11. He was a child when the Polish Republic was reborn after partition. Uh, and he uh, mm, was uh, mm, one of the first generation who, who started uh, its adult life in it. He became active in public life uh, as his parents were in the, mm, in the late of 19th century. Uh, just as a university student. His, but his engagement was rooted in this uh, late 19th century ethical tradition of the radical intelligentsia devoted to build an independent state. The independent state in the, uh, in the beginning of the uh, 20th century was very fresh, very young. Um, so... Uh, this link between both the underground state existing during the January uprising and German occupation shows the same pattern of understanding of, of civil duty. The people, uh, the intelligentsia from the second part of uh, 19th century uh, fought for for for. Um, for independent um, state and uh, the generation uh, uh, of Moczarski was faced to the same during the Second World War. Why was the Polish underground state built? The main goal was to consolidate and lead the Polish society through this darkness of the education. This is the, the main goal, I would say. Yes. Uh, second, Moczarski became a member of a very important cell called of office, uh, the Office of Information and Propaganda. It was a very specific place. It assembled the Polish intellectual elite, university scholars, sociologists, historians, economists, and lawyers, they serve for the authorities, for the uh, underground authorities in Poland and abroad for, for Polish government uh, in exile. The reports they produced became the most reliable source of information about the political opinion, about, about the social life uh, in the occupied country. It was a conspirational think tank, I would say. Mm. In the last month of the occupation, of German occupation after the Warsaw Uprising, uh, when the chief of his office was arrested by German, Moczowski took his place and rose from a relatively low level in the military hierarchy. He continued uh, in that position after the Red Army entered the Polish lands and, but the war still was going. Uh, and in that moment, it seemed not pointless. Yes, and the Yalta conferences on, of February 1944, uh, the Allies agreed to sponsor democratic election in Poland and everybody, everything was open, still open. 
Yeah, it's it's difficult to inhabit the space of uh, mid-1945 without falling into a measure of despair, I think, because obviously we know what happened, and we know what happened specifically to Mozarski, and your book sketches that in in brutal and very empathetic uh, detail. I, I really, really I should underscore for the audience that it's a beautifully written and beautifully translated book that really evoke uh, the different dimensions of Mozarski's experience and context. The way you described this moment of exiting from war uh, into the post-Yalta moment, I'm struck thinking also of that, your other great description from what you were just saying, a conspiratorial think tank. Mozarski was part of a think tank type environment. Is it possible? Can we imagine? It's a thought experiment, obviously. But would it even make sense to imagine him as a participant in the kind of popular front politics, shall we call them, of the first two years after World War II, when it seemed like maybe there might be a space for someone other than uh, activists of the Polish Workers' Party, later the Polish United Workers' Party. He, in your book, comes off quite as a man of the left. He's clearly not a man of the right, uh, even though his politics maybe are unclear, maybe complicated, maybe just never had the opportunity to develop fully. Can you imagine him as a political actor in the immediate post-war if he hadn't been arrested? Uh, he was involved in politics since the late 30s. He was a member of uh, democratic movement uh, uh, in, just before before the, 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 the war. And uh, during, uh, during the war, he was a member of uh, underground party, Democratic Party. Uh, the fate of this party was uh, after um, uh, after um, after after war was uh, rather um, sad because um, it's true that that some uh, uh, colleagues of him from the Democratic Party partially followed the Popular Front um, and they. Uh, Later, during the Stalinist era, they lost their integrity. Uh, for me, it's of course difficult to, to, to predict what would what would happen with Mochalski, but I think that uh, his political and ethical integrity was very deep, uh, deeper than his political ambitions. So Mochalski who was searching for his own ideology, ideology so long, from 30s, and uh, finally he opted for the democratic movement. Um, for, for him, uh, it means that he, uh, he opted to uh, a liberal, democratic, and, and secular, secular state, but not uh, an authoritarian. He was very sensitive to social injustice, but above all, he respected the law. He was a lawyer. And uh, the social contract, but social contracts, but he wasn't uh, in favor of, of the revolution. So I suppose that sooner or later he would be pushed out from the popular front or 
even arrested later. Yeah, the, the notion of rule of law really dovetails very well with the portrait of this idea of civility as a, a lived day-to-day experience that comes out of your book. And that's partly also why the book, I think, really left me shaken. I, I mentioned to you uh, earlier that this is a book that we, I think, the largest possible audience can read and can walk away with a clear portrait of the brutality of the Stalinist era and the Stalinist political system. Also the Stalinist carceral system, the the reality of imprisonment. And it strikes me that the moment of your translations publication is very fortuitous in that actually there's been some really interesting historical work in recent years, taking new perspectives to the Stalinist security and carceral apparatus in Eastern Europe in the mid 20th century. Uh, I'm thinking of a couple of specific books, one by Anna Müller, If These Walls Could Talk, uh, about women in Stalinist prisons, one by Mali Pucci, Security Empire, kind of bottom up social history, of the people who populated the secret police apparatus of several East Central European countries in the first decade of its existence. The question that I would pose to you, uh, and it seems like a, a, a fairly maybe jarring transition from this notion of rule of law, but I think it underscores the disconnect, the dissonance that Malcharsky must have felt even before the brutality of uh, his imprisonment took root, how instead of rule of law, he had to live physical beatings and physical, uh, basically being consumed by a reality of torture on a daily basis. So the question that I would pose to you is, for him, was this a problem that spoke to Poland and how Poland had lost rule of law? Or do you think it actually reflects the Soviet takeover? And I think that's a bigger historiographical question where your book really fits in beautifully with the, some of the newer trends. I would say that Motarski's case is very Polish and very East European. It's a European... Mm, uh, is European uh, fate to two regimes and took occupation. Mm. Uh, the story shows how the subjection happened. Uh, obviously, uh, it was the Soviets who installed the communist regime in Poland. Without them, the fate of Moczarski and people like him would uh, would have been different, probably. Yes, we we could uh, we could have a, a democratic state. Uh, on the other hand, Motowski was interrogated, tortured, and persecuted not by Soviet functionaries, by the by the Poles, by the people in Polish uniforms, but using Stalinists' methods. So it's a it's not a real independent state. Of course, it's a 
it's a very artificial creature which uh, for for Motarski who uh, was as I said who was uh, who, who who respected the law and expected uh, uh, the legal procedure uh, was uh, non understandable and even worse yes so uh, when he, finally he was released from the prison after 11 year he demanded a uh, honest uh, trial and he had it the the question of his uh, retrial right or the the in other words the difference between what you just described his belief in rule of law leading him to demand a retrial versus being amnesty. I think that's something that might not be entirely clear to our audience. And I think for Mocharski, this was, as you, you, I think, beautifully evoke, he was a lawyer, he understood the difference, he understood what he had experienced, and he wanted it to be acknowledged. And it, he also was released at a moment where, you say this in your book, the window was very small for uh, a kind of rule of law type of experience. Do you feel like he got what he was seeking? He was able to achieve some proof of rule of law? Uh, he achieved. He was he was very stubborn, and he uh, he demanded and he achieved. It was it was uh, his his trial. His trial was very uh, very uh, probably one of the fame one of the most fa famous trials uh, in the uh, during the uh, during the fleet in Poland uh, and and uh, uh, he uh, uh, and this trial really uh, uh, revealed many of Stalinist practice yes so it was very important as, uh, as as you said it was a very small window but very important this window somehow closed a certain era certain epoch yeah in some sense for me then motarski is the embodiment of the kind of rise and fall of stalinism in so many ways uh, and, and I think that, that that's also, it's one of many stories that come through very clearly in your book. But the way that these transitions are written uh, from say, into the Stalinist period, out of the Stalinist period, it strikes me that it's very, it must have been very difficult for you conceptualizing. And I, mean, I think the result is, is extraordinarily powerful and really, really smooth. The, the difference between writing about someone fighting underground and then writing about political imprisonment and then writing about the return to freedom uh, in the sense also the source materials are different and the psychology is different. Do you, did you have to write these at different uh, at times? I, I have a hard time imagining them being written one after another after another, <laughs> because your own psychology must have been affected as you were writing this. You know, I, uh, I, 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 I've written this book very quickly, and uh, I would say that I, I, I've written one chapter 
and another chapter without any without any uh, any break. Uh, for me, uh, it's simply it was simply the same person. Yes, it was a Terry. It was I I I I I I like like I like I like I would mm, take a, a journey with somebody, journey through his life, join him, and uh, I joined him and and. Um, mm, and observed, yes, and observed, uh, tried to uh, and try to understand him, follow him, yes. I tried to follow him, his decisions, his um, his per- perspectives, his uh, pain, his lost, this horrible story of his marriage, which was devastated because. Uh, uh, I can mention that also uh, uh, his uh, wife was arrested for six and, and condemned for six years. Uh, so they they were uh, released and uh, they um, tried to reconstruct to, to to save their marriage after eleven years. So it's. It's another price of 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 being a political prisoner. So this this uh, this story have, have so many dimensions to um, uh, to, to to read. That uh, this is I would say this is not only East European story. I think that it could be uh, it could be touching for. Um, uh, for everybody who um, who is looking uh, um, uh, a testimony, um, how to survive, um, uh, how to survive uh, tough times, um, and survive successfully. Um, um, uh, even the obstacle looked uh, so um, not um, possible to to, um, to to not not possible to um, not possible to to to, um, to survive. Yeah. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Well, that's it. I mean, his his story is so brutal in so many ways. I uh, I, I love your description, though, and I, I think partly while I was reading this the last time, I was making notes to myself for my own teaching purposes. I have students sometimes who want to write uh, biographical history, and biographical history is difficult, partly for the reason you outline. You really have to inhabit. The, the space, the mental space, to the extent possible, of the protagonist of your story, 
but you also have to maintain the critical distance and speak to more than just the significance of one man or woman, right? In that sense, the particular in this case is really powerful, but we also seek, if not the universal, then at least something broader or more general. And I agree with you that Mozarski's story does speak beyond Poland, beyond Eastern Europe, the one way of thinking about this I would, strikes me. If I yeah, may, ahead, I, would, I, yeah. would, I would add that uh, for me, the story is uh, very brutal and, and sad uh, and, and very painful, but also very optimistic to some, uh, uh, to some extent, because he, uh, uh, until the end, he, um, uh, he tried to be... Uh, n- happy person yes he 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 lived with uh, around uh, many friends uh, uh, he have uh, he had uh, 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 the f- uh, his family uh, he tried to to uh, to, uh, to to work and uh, finally he uh, he has uh, written uh, a book which was important for him he so he uh, he, um, yeah, he uh, survived and he gave a testimony. Yeah. I'm glad you brought up the book that he wrote. Obviously, this is a book, uh, and I mean Matarski's book, that has existed in the international realm for decades uh, at this point. Uh, I forget how many languages it was translated 14, into. 14, I think. Well, that's it, and I think it's been available in English More than for, 10. No, for it's 40 available years English, at this point. French, no. German, Japanese, Ukrainian lately, Greek, brilliant, Italian, so, Russian, so even. Yeah, experience. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, uh, Russian even finally. Yeah. <laughs> well, that yes. that that already says something. That already says something. Yes. Uh, experience with SS General Strop. Uh, is well known. And in that sense, I think one of the great things also that comes of your book and something I wanted to ask you is how we place what we know from reading Motarski into the context of his biography. You describe in your introduction to your book, uh, the bo- book that Motarski wrote, Conversations with an Executioner, as a vivisection of a killer. And one of the concepts that you bring in, and it makes perfect sense, is Hannah Arendt's concept of the banality of evil. I think historians, not just of the Holocaust, but more generally of the 20th century, have been conflicted in recent decades about Hannah Arendt's concept in the sense that they worry, and in some cases are quite convinced, that it somewhat absolves Adolf Eichmann of a measure of responsibility. And in this particular instance, Mocharski got to know Strop much better than obviously Hannah Arendt knew uh, Eichmann. She didn't know him personally at all. But in that sense, uh, then, then most people who would use the banality of evil concept would really be able to speak to their subjects as human beings. So I'm curious for you if uh, knowing... Motarski's story as well as you do. 
does banality of evil, in his case, if we can really use it to describe how he thought about Shchop, mean just that he wanted to humanize Shchop, or that understanding the executioner better really does in some way diminish individual responsibility? Moczewski mm-hmm. faced a criminal and uh, the mortal enemy for the last six years, which... Who, who, who was Chop exactly? Uh, but in a cell, prisoners are even, and they simply talk. And during this very long conversation with Chop, Moczewski wanted simply to know him, to understand, to uh, not uh, in order to absolve him, yes, but in order to understand how he became a Nazi. Moczarski slid and diced uh, uh, Strop and, and reconstructed his life with him, following him. And he discovered, which he described in his book, that uh, the sad truth is how easily it is to, to, to transform humans into beasts. Strop was a very limited person, vain thoughtlessly repeating slogans, nothing interesting in his personality, in his personality, Moczarski couldn't fight. So uh, he was banal, but obedient, obedient to the end and uh, ready to commit a, a crime without any hesitations. So uh, Moczarski analysis enhance or corresponds to Aaron's conclusion, I would say. But, uh, yeah, I would say they, they, they uh, both were perfect cocks in, in the bureaucratic machine of, of totalitarian state, and they both are guilty. And Moczarski's uh, book shows uh, it in a very convincing way. I would say. The experience, and obviously we know a lot about Stop, both from Motarski's book and from the records of his trial, from the trial itself. I'm curious, uh, obviously we have the trial records for Motarski, but you had mentioned that part of what, what attracted you to this subject was finding so much material about Mocharski. And I do want to stick with the question of how to write the story of imprisonment and torture somewhat, just because it is such a personal story, even though it speaks to much broader stakes. Uh, partly because I think in general, a lot of historians of the communist period wrestle with this. Those who do it, let's say, less critically, will just kind of copy things from the files that they read. But that's not what you do at all. And I'm curious how you thought about the process of triangulating Mocharski's own reflections with what you found in his interrogation records uh, or the other records of the secret police with what you found in other sources. In other words, how did you know or how did you get to the point where you had confidence that you really understood what he was feeling when he was being beaten and kicked repeatedly by Józef Ruzański or 
whomever. Yeah, you know, it's um, uh, the material produced by secret police are very sensitive. Yeah, uh, but historia should be critical and distrustful to any kind of sources. So. Um, Documents produced by security uh, apparatus could be indeed misleading, but um, should be all, and and should be always confronted to another sources. Uh, if there are any doubts, uh, historians should admit it and reveal it to the readers. I I would I would give you an example. Uh, I found uh, among these documents in IPN, in the archive of IPN, I found one very ambiguous. Uh, it was an argument to cooperation signed by Moczarski in prison, in a very special circumstances, of course. It was only a copy. I didn't find uh, any other proof Proofs of corporations, nothing. But I I found it and I couldn't to conceal it. So I've decided to write about it and uh, also um, I I've written about all my doubts regarding these documents. I think that it was only honest way. How to how 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 I can manage with with with, with this problem? Reveal and 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 share my doubt, doubts. That's all. Because I couldn't uh, I couldn't uh, decide it was it was truth or not. It was false or or not. I don't know. But I I I can uh, I can show only all. Uh, uh, circumstances. In that sense, also reflecting on what he said afterwards, I think really enhances and of course complicates the story. In some sense, I wonder still if it made it easier for him or harder to think about his own experience when he was writing conversations with an execution. Because of course, of course, he was partly focusing on himself. He had to be in order to write that book. Do you think it, it helped in terms of recovering from having been in prison or, or it's hard to say in the end? I think that uh, writing a story of, of uh, a, a short life story for, for, uh, 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 for uh, Motarski, uh, it was um, extreme... Um, Mm, uh, uh, experience because uh, he had to hide himself. Uh, I think that uh, mm, he decided to mm, to delete somehow his uh, his um, presence from the story. It was, uh, to some extent, it was because uh, did, he probably didn't want to, to, to complicate, complicate the story so much, but also it was kind of self, um, 
of self uh, uh, self imitation. Uh, he. Uh, we, You're we, saying he we was censoring to, himself? Do yes, you think? yes. Okay. I, I, I would say this because he. We we have to uh, remember that he still uh, was living under communism, and he couldn't. Uh, 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 he couldn't uh, write um, the whole story openly. He couldn't write uh, his part of story. Why he uh, was in the cell? Yes, with drop. Uh, we uh, in these times, uh, communist times, uh, the uh, people who uh, people who 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 read this, his book uh, could only uh, could only um, could only. Uh, uh, could only uh, uh, could only guess, yes, what what happened to him. So uh, yes. Well, I think that the way that you described just now how he tried to pull himself back, uh, but also dealt with certain realities. I'm thinking about the title of the book, but it's not just about the title, the, the civility and uncivil times, which I think uh, it, it expresses uh, very well what was going on in um, Motarsky's sort of core ethical dilemmas. But for, for you, it's clear that he is a kind of beacon of civility, not in a kind of abstract philosophical way, but in a real, everyday, practical kind of way. And I'm curious, given what you were describing before, when we study Eastern Europe, we know about the, the problem of the dual totalitarianisms, but it's one thing to know about the, the, the big political picture, and it's another to think about how exactly people could respond, right? So would you consider that self-censorship you were describing? Is that... Uh, an example of trying to be civil, uh, or I guess my 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 broader question is: Would you say that this was this idea of of trying to find an ethical way of life in circumstances where being ethical was very difficult? And I don't just mean in prison or underground, but in the face of censorship. Is that something that guided everything he did? Or at the end of the day, did he really want the book to appear? And was that maybe a little bit more decisive when it came to deciding what to write or what not to write? I'm 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 not sure, of course. I can only I can only guess that, that Motraski decided decided to 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 to, to, to uh, write this book in this way using self censorship uh, because it was the only way to 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 to, to describe the story and and he uh, he was sure that that uh, 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 he uh, he caught a great material 
Yes, like a journalist. He know uh, he knows something very important, and it was more important to reveal it that uh, that to 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 uh, to uh, um, uh, to think about. Uh, uh, about uh, its uh, its uh, its censorship, self censorship is uh, is uh, not okay, or, or or it's okay, and you know it's uh, this the decision to publish it, to prepare it. It's uh, for him. It's it's essential. It's substantial, and it was. Uh, and uh, the other things are less less important. So it's. Uh, it's yeah it's it's a civil decision i would say yes what what is what is really important yes this is a good moment i think maybe to reflect on on Motarsky's legacy and in that sense it could speak to the subsequent history of poland or even more generally to the region Motarsky obviously died in 1975 so there are so many things we can speculate about in terms of what he would have thought, what he would have seen, how he would have reacted. But one thing that, again, really struck me during uh, it, rather in the course of this reading of your book, is just how scared or horrified or concerned he was by certain behaviors on the political far right. And in this sense, it's not even for me because he was a man of the left, but the, particularly the National Armed Forces, or NZ for those uh, in the audience who, who are more conversant in Polish affairs, Motarski comes out point blank and calls them pure fascists. And the NZ have had a pretty good cultural afterlife in the 21st century, I have to say. Uh, I, I guess I'm, I don't necessarily even want to talk specifically about the NZ, but I'm curious how you feel Motarski would assess uh, cultural memory of the two totalitarianisms today, because some uh, some formations have been uh, lionized or glorified, and others have really been vilified in the extreme, especially. Anyone who's been paying attention to politics in the past 10 years will know uh, the roundtable talks and the process that dismantled the communist regime. But just in terms of the groups that Motarski knew personally, how do we think, knowing what we know about Motarski, knowing what we know about how he tried to be civil, about the different options for pol- politics of memory in, in 2021? Ah. Mm. Uh. No, I think that the Second World War should have cured people once uh, and for all on inflicting any form of uh, persecution based on based on nationality and and beliefs and so on. But uh, we know that it haven't cured. And today, uh, in in even in Europe, in many European countries, we have uh, a wave of radical uh, racist anti-emigrant movements, not only in Poland, but in Germany, Sweden, French. And, uh, uh, and, but true is that democratic 
countries somehow struggle with this wave, um, more or less. But in Poland, we have a right-wing government who doesn't, and he who finally supports our contemporary nationalists. At the same time, this government, using this um, political, this history, is using history, is focused on history and presents uh, as heroes people like Mochatsky and uh, the members of the National Armed Force together. It's a lie. It's a pure uh, hypocrisy. And what uh, what we can what we can uh, say uh, we can we can protest we can say it's it's a, it's a, um, it's not true and uh, for example in Poland we have um, we have have an uh, award um, uh, who uh, have a name of Kazimierz Mutalski. Uh, we awarded uh, historical bo- books, and every year it's a it is an opportunity to to remind who he was, and and uh, so through education, through popularization, his name, his uh, his struggle. Uh, not only Mochatsky, but but people like him. We can we can try to educate to to try to convince people uh, and 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 um, maybe we can um, we can um, stop this wave or not. I certainly but hope I, so. Yeah, yeah. the the uh, education part I can't yes. underscore yeah. uh, enough, and I'm so glad you have. For those in the audience who don't know the Motarski Award, it is really one of the most prestigious awards for uh, books about contemporary history uh, awarded in Poland. So the name Motarski shows up on uh, in the pages of the press. Every yes, year. and every every year for one or two months, when when this information are released about about nominations, uh, it's it's really something. I think, yeah. So uh, I wanted to ask now that we're moving into the final minutes of our interview, if you feel like sharing uh, any news with our audience about your current projects. I know, obviously that uh, your book about the origins of Solidarność is being translated. Uh, what else are you working on? Because I'm sure our audience would love to know what they can look forward to. Um, now I'm uh, finally is, uh, I'm reading a new book about, huh. uh, I started many, um, a couple of years ago, I started a new project uh, um, uh, which uh, described a prison system, but, but uh, in in Poland during Stalinism, but from different way, not as a, a place of post-war retribution or political, political and ideological repressions or mass scale terror, because these functions have already been researched. Uh, instead of uh, that, I I like to. Uh, focus on the dimension of everyday life, 
in the prisons, how people uh, uh, fun uh, how how functions uh, in a close prison microcosm, but in this certain uh, in this certain uh, authoritarian reality. So uh, mm, I'm going to analyze the mutual influences of individuals and groups within one cell. The rituals, the the uh, connections uh, between the connection between inmates and and uh, and uh, overse- overseers. Uh, so this is a um, quite uh, broad, um, mm, yes, microcosm, very special. But this experience, prison experience, uh, was of. Mm, shaped a considerable part of the post-war generation in Poland. Not in Poland, in the, in East Europe. So, I think that it's it's interesting to describe what these people uh, experience and who they who they're uh, uh, after all who they were. After releasing, yeah, that is an incredibly timely approach. I think this sort of cultural history of uh, imprisonment, and clearly, it's a uh, a perfect follow up uh, to what you wrote and or to the approach that you took to Motarski's biography. I uh, I'm glad you brought up also the more general element for Eastern Europe. I think that may be my last question. Uh, how would you situate, I know that you haven't finished the book yet, obviously, but just in your preliminary conclusions, how would you situate Poland on this particular point with respect to the rest of, of the, of the block? Um, uh, in this, um, how, 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 uh, how, how prison, uh, 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 I I try to you know it's um, I I try to to focus not only uh, uh, from the political point of view but I uh, uh, from the anthropological anthropological point of view so so uh, I try to describe this piece people not as a, as a victim of 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 communism of uh, but a victim of uh, uh, the uh, total institutions, but under uh, total regime. So it's uh, it's uh, uh, I am focusing more on 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 on, on this uh, anthropological uh, experience than political. Uh, but uh, the, the differences between Poland, for example, and and Soviet uh, Russia is uh, it's uh, mm, it's uh, it's uh, very mm, substantial. Uh, one of them is that in in Poland we have prisons, and uh, Russia they have uh, gulags, they have camps. We haven't. So this is different experience and and uh, and uh, I, I, I also tried in my book uh, tried to, to to answer why why Polish communists didn't buy a, a system of, of Gulag in Poland because they didn't <laughs> yeah 
I can't wait to read the book. Uh, and let me just say that I think that this is a, a wonderful project. And uh, as I mentioned earlier, really just uh, such an important follow-up in, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a scholarly conversation that's really very current right now for a lot of reasons. I want to thank Professor Machtsevich for joining us today on the New Books in Eastern European Studies podcast. If I may once again offer my most wholehearted and warmest recommendation to our audience that you uh, get your hands on a copy of Civility in Uncivil Times, Kazimierz Mozarski's Quiet Battle for Truth, From the Polish Underground to Stalinist Prison, published last year by Peter Lang. Professor Marcevich, thank you so much for joining me and for speaking with us. Thank you very much, too. Thank you to everyone. And uh, once again, thanks for joining and listening in to new books in Eastern European studies. Have a good afternoon.